It was a dark and stormy night. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of Number 4 Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal, thank you very much. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Call me Ishmael. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a conversation about the importance of stories and how they shape us. Welcome to Storyformed. All right, welcome back to Storyformed, another episode of the Faith and Culture Storyform series where we're talking about the moral imagination. Van, what is the moral imagination? <laughs> well, I imagine it's about morals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the moral imagination, sort of um, the way that an individual uh, forms its own sort of narrative viewpoint of, of, of moral, his own moral engagement with the world. And that moral, our, our moral engagement with the world is far less propositional and far more yeah. narratival than, than I think we typically consider. It's not, yeah. we don't just have the 10 commandments, but we have all of the, all of the old Testament that tell all those stories about what happened. Yeah. The moral imagination, uh, your, your eyes can tell you babies are small. Your moral imagination your moral imagination tells you babies are precious, right? It's that value yep. system that's built into the world around you. And it's usually, like you said, built under a, a, around a story. Yeah. And, and Kyle, you've got babies on the mind right now, right? I do. Have, I, okay. I have a baby coming in December. It's my first one. And I have um, a feeling we're going to be, be getting a lot of baby uh, illustrations and yeah. analogies over yeah. the next year or so. Yeah, more than usual. I'm I'm unashamed in my yeah. illustrations <laughs> and good. applications. Some of our some of our analogies are infantile, but we're going to be getting a lot more <laughs> babyish uh, as we go along here. Okay, so um, you know we have this parallel series that we're in. It's the Real Talk series, and we're talking about. We just finished an episode on Pinocchio. Pinocchio is one of those stories, I think, that helps to form the moral imagination of children. They, they'll, you, you'll begin to approach your own moral conundrums through the lens of the story, Pinocchio, and you'll ask yourself, okay, I need to tell the truth, or there may be consequences in my life. Uh, and, and so that's, that, I think, is what we mean by story formed, the kinds of stories that we imbibe as people, and especially in our, in our childhood, tend to form the moral landscape of our lives as we approach our own moral questions. The story of, you know, Daniel and the lion's den might crop up. You know, I got to make like Daniel when people don't want me to be religious or to, or to express faith in Christ in this given context, when the world is hostile to my faith, I still need to be faithful no matter what the consequences are. You know, so that's kind of an example of what we mean by the moral imagination of a person. Today we want to talk about how it is exactly that the family forms the moral imagination of its members. Mm-hmm. We're going to argue here that 
the family is uniquely designed by God to form the moral imagination in ways that the church really only benefits from. Yep. Right, the, the the church can benefit from the family's moral formation of their children, of its children, and the church can come alongside and help to augment the moral formation of children. But it isn't the primary seedbed of that moral formation. Mm-hmm. It's it's the family uh, that I think goes all the way back to Genesis and is sort of that sort of baseline societal institution, uh, ground zero of of society for 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 every society around the world. So. How does the family do that? Yeah. That's the first question. How is it that the family, or what is it about the family, I should say, that has that kind of influence? I, th- I think there's um, the, the, the parental and child relationship begins in such intense trust and dependency that there's, I think, a lot of formation that just happens by osmosis, almost. I mean, children observe their parents and observe what their um, what their choices are and how they're choosing to live and what they're prioritizing with their time and other things. And I think a certain amount of it goes on just almost passively on the part of the child, just kind of absorbing uh, from what they observe in their parents. Um, what what are the things that matter in this world? Hmm. Yeah, so I piggyback on that. What are the things that matter in this world? Um, I would say human beings <clears throat> from from their childhood, from their early days. You, you you know, we all know what a heat seeking missile is. You know, there are some boys who make like heat seeking missiles yeah. <laughs> and just flying around the do. house. Um, and and some girls too. I've got one. My four year old boy, she's a heat seeking missile. Um. But I think human beings are meaning-seeking missiles. Yeah. Mm. We have a tracking system in our brains. We, we want to know not just what a thing is, but what it means. And so the family is the context within which we learn what a thing means. Mm. Uh, we, we, we learn, I, I, don't, I don't mean like, hey, what does that verse in the Bible mean? Right. But what things are for? Yeah, what its inherent purpose is. I think part of this, too, comes down to the fact that the family is somewhat more than the sum of its parts in the sense that a child is not entering. It's not like the family all of a sudden exists when a child arrives, right? So a a child is, you know, in God's design, entering a family that already exists, a covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. And I think that built-in relationship of as keith was saying trust of love of commitment um but it's also something that has it's already pointing to meaning like you said it's already pointing to purpose it's it is a picture of a greater design of god's love with his people and so that you know that kind of third character in the marriage if you will of god sort of blessing that marriage and giving it meaning and giving it purpose and empowering it to do what it's supposed to do i think that's also very key for how he wants it to shape children because it's a relationship that can't exist and really shouldn't exist if there isn't a higher meaning and a higher power behind it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i found you know from the time our kids were you know born and the fact that a father and mother, <clears throat> you would hope, are the constant presence in their lives in the house, you know, you're feeding them, you're changing them, you're taking care of them. They get a little bit older, 
and all of a sudden something goes wrong, something breaks, they get scared, they're calling out to you. And whether you're ready or not, they're leaning on you to be able to deal with those situations. So you're the one they're looking to, to provide understanding and knowledge for what, you know, they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. And so... Um, the charge in scripture, of course, given to parents is, is with that to train them up in the ways of the, the Lord. And, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, so it's a big responsibility, but I think it, it helps form for them when they step outside of the house, you know, what it is they ought to, how they ought to perceive and understand the world around them and, and how to interact. And it's, it's done, you know, the thing you're describing, I think is done by more than, uh, you know, didaction it's more than yeah. just being ex- explicitly taught i think families are a reflection of reality mm-hmm. so so like god says um i am the patria the father by whom all patrias families fatherhoods are named this is god the father is the father through whom by whom all fathers are named so you've got this you, you, you know, I think there, there's a lot of people who assume God is using a metaphor to call himself a father because it's something we all understand because we've got fathers. No, we are the metaphor. Right. Yeah. We, as fathers, we are the metaphor that reflects the ultimate reality, which is God mm-hmm. yeah. as father. And so w- when, when mothers and fathers are being mothers and fathers in the home, they're reflecting ultimate reality. And, and that's a good thing. Now, in our day and age, obviously post Genesis three, post the fall of mankind, they're reflecting a fallen reality. Right, right. And that's a, that's something unique that we contend with, and that I think that only the Christian home can redeem. The Christian home is the closest thing you can get to Genesis two. It's just better than Genesis two because it's got Jesus and redemption all wrapped up in it, um, and it's aiming at something better than Genesis two. So. In, in the same way that a Christian marriage becomes an icon, for instance, the metaphor of Christ and the church, according to Ephesians, right. our families and our homes become a metaphor, an icon of that ultimate reality of redemption that God's yeah. bringing about in the world. So, so that's that's how the family, I think, helps. Yeah, yeah I, I also think, you know, I made the comment sort of by osmosis because there's just this intimate relationship. But I think and you made the point, it's not all didactic, right? It's not all just a formal instruction of a set of propositions. Uh, but I also think some, there's something in between didactic and osmosis, and that is just talking about stuff, right, when <laughs> it, you're living your life. This it's is both kinda, of it, yeah. Right, this is kind of the Deuteronomy 6 mm-hmm. uh, thing, right? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is, I mean, there's a lot of ways to understand that. It, he says, you know, talk about this when you Walk along walked the along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. And I think what it, it's he's really trying to express there in part is that uh, the nature, the subject matter of your life and your conversations should be leavened with truthfulness about meaning and the, purpose and the morals. The covenant should and, be the context of your life. Right. That, you know, it should determine and define the context of all your life. So, if, if, so here's the thing. If, if, if you're, if it, if it never comes up in conversation just naturally with your children, moral questions never come up, then you got to wonder where are they in your own yeah. uh, mind space? 
not your children, but yeah. the moral questions. Right, because, the, yeah. I mean, I talk to my wife about stuff I'm thinking about. Mm. You know, and then you write it down on a website, and well, sometimes I do. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> I do. Um, boy, I don't write down everything I've been thinking yeah. about. Everyone would drop my website. Um, anyway, um, so I do think that there's just there's just this. What are the what are the things that matter to us that we're sloshing around in in our homes and in our minds and in our conversations and in our music and in our consumption of art and you know just you know, in terms of moral imagination stuff, I I can't fathom how, if that is an intentional part of your life, you could ever go through life without just talking about that stuff mm-hmm. and, and on some regularity. I was know? walking, to your point, I was walking around, when, I, when we lived in South Carolina, my, my son and I would go to a place called Jarvis Creek Park, and um, beautiful, beautiful little park there on the coast of South Carolina, and there was alligators all over the place, you know, so there's alligators swimming around this park and we would fish for bluegill in this park and it was a lot of fun. We were taking a walk around this trail that, that surrounded the pond and I asked my son as we were walking, I said, Abe, if, if Jesus were to suddenly hop out of those bushes up, up ahead of us, you know, and it's Jesus in the flesh, what, what would you ask him? What would you want to know? And he just sort of reinterpreted my question. He didn't even really answer the what would I ask him thing. I'm, I'm, I'm looking so for he information. Is your, so he is your son. Right, yeah, <laughs> apparently. I, I'm looking for information from Jesus, right? That's the way I'm thinking. And my son said, Dad, I would run to him and jump in his arms and say thank you. Hmm. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, that's a better answer than the question I was asking. Yeah. Um, not Jesus, what information can you give me? But, but he's thinking, how, how would I respond to the one who saved me? I would, I would hug yeah. him, you know? And so anyway, to your point, that conversation showed up in our lives, and he and I both remember it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And since all this is happening sort of organically within the, the rhythm and uh, the patterns of you got to eat, you got to sleep, you got to work. You got to clean stuff up. Um, value just becomes a natural expression, right? So um, parents teach their children about value in all those things. It's, hey, you clean your room. Well, why? Household right? rules. You know, yeah. household rules. It's your, it's what do we do? How do we eat? Do we sit down at a table facing each other? Do we sit on a couch all facing a screen? Um, when we go to bed, is there a rhythm to that? Do we pray before we go to bed and ask God to forgive us our sins? I mean, these rhythms, these rituals all convey meaning at the most basic sense. Uh, whenever I uh, moved out of my parents' house as a, um, as a young man, you enter into that first apartment with a bunch of bros and all of a sudden you realize there's a lot of mixed meaning in our different lives about what matters in a house and we all of a sudden realize oh i have strong opinions about which cabinet the plates go in or i have strong opinions about how often the carpet should be vacuumed and it's because that's values that yeah, some people's that opinion houses. is never some, yeah. some which when you're a 20 something guy that's it's a much smaller quotient it's a than, margin, than it yeah. was tell you a funny story no. tell you a funny story about my dad he went off to, he went to college for two years he went off to the korean war and he fought in korea spent a year in japan and then a year back in the states and uh something happened to him after he was in the army because when he came back to college every single saturday he would move all the furniture out of his dorm room 
and wax the floors. Oh gosh. And then move it all back in. Wow. And uh, so, wow. so he would yeah. be kind of maybe a, a kind of a nettlesome roommate <laughs> if, for if he was in your apartment because if he, moves he would the have all you guys. If he moves the furniture himself, then I'm fine with this guy. But if I can move my own furniture. He also slept in a tent in, you know, North Korea or or in Korea for... A year and then in Japan for a year. Yeah. And so he he was all about wax floors rather than dirt floors. He never went camping again. He told us as boys, boys, camping is not going to be part of your growing up experience. (laughs) I've already done all the camping. We're not doing any work. So so here's a cool example of this. You're telling a story about your father. You're telling a story about my grandfather. Right. Hmm. And this is how the moral imagination is formed yep. within families. Yep. When you share stories, not just about Pinocchio, right? To, right. We, we talked about him already. But when we st- share stories about our ancestors, not, you know, I was talking to my brother. My brother, Josh, has gotten real into family ancestry searches. I mean, he's deep, deep, deep in the woods and waters of our ancestry. And he's turned up some really weird characters in our ancestry. Um, and every now and then he'll call me and say, hey, you're not going to believe what happened 200 years ago in our family line. You know, um, But but one of the things in, in a conversation he and I were talking about lately, one of the things that stood out to me is I don't have pictures of my grandparents up on the walls in my home. Hmm. And I don't know of many people who do. And, and, and it's a strange thing. I've got pictures of my grandparents that I have like on a little, a tiny little table, like a wallet picture, you know, mm-hmm. that, that sure. you get. But I, um, you know what I do have up on the walls of my house? My house? Words. Yeah. I've got, <laughs> you know, because words are what ladies want to put on the walls of their house. They go to Dadgum Hobby Lobby and they come home with a paragraph. You know, and then they want to put that paragraph on the wall, and it's just usually a bunch of random words. Eat, laugh, love, live, pray, potty, be nice, you know, and, and you, you got these words all over the house. Um, we, don't, we don't put art hardly in our houses anymore, or pictures of our ancestors, but, but the, you know, when De- Deuteronomy 6, when he talks about um, bedeck the halls of your home with, with the images of the covenant, right, when he talks about that. I, I think he means something more than mere words. Tell us stories about your ancestors. Yeah. Let that help form. We're not just autonomous homes mm. or autonomous individuals. We're connected. We're the legacy of something. We're the legacy of something. That's right. We view yourself as somebody else's legacy and, yeah. and rather than as your own autonomy. Yeah. And, and it'll change the way that you're approaching not just your own home, but your relationships with people. I think another reality that's just baked into the family that makes it key for moral formation is I'm going to use a harsh term, but I'll explain it. The, inis- the inescapability of the family right. in the sense that, um, you get ask, with, you get with that man, ask, ask any person, <laughs> ask any person who's had a bad experience with their family. And they'll tell you there's something about family that's inescapable in the sense yeah. that you, they're not going away, right? They're going to be there for the rest of your life, and you're going to have to deal with those relationships, yeah. whether it's your parents, whether it's your children, whether it's your siblings. And so the family sort of forces everybody to be honest and to be real and to be, <laughs> to an extent, if they're, if they're morally formed, kind. 
you, you have to deal with each other. And so yeah. in, a, in a world where, you, especially with the church, you can go to whatever church you want in whatever life stage you want and switch every couple of months if you want to. Now you can. Now yeah. you can. You know, not back in the day as much. Um, but you could you could stay home from church, um, but the, the the family you you have to deal with them, mm-hmm. and so there's a moral there's higher stakes morally in the yeah, family that has to form you. Your your family members are inescapable in a way that comes to surprise you and um, traumatize you mm. in some cases. Mm. You'd you'd kind of like sometimes to not be held by the choices of your family members yeah, and to suffer yeah. those consequences, but you, you will. And the way that you respond is a big, a big deal. And it says a lot about your own moral formation, your yeah. own character development. Yeah. Um, I don't like this language in modern times of your friends are the family you choose. Yeah. <laughs> and calling sort of friends, your new family and that, that show friends yeah. Was really all about that dynamic. Right. It was sort of a that hey, chosen family yeah, type thing. Yeah, chosen thing. family idea and it's like, well, um your 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 family is also the people that you're you're ultimately bound to um more than just genetically but spiritually. Mm-hmm. M- you know, morally. And um yeah. It the only way you can have a chosen family in the Christian perspective is through covenant. It's the mm-hmm. only way you can mm-hmm. add to the family outside of biology. So, right. we're, you know, the, it, it occurs to me that this conversation has taken place in a society and at a time where the family is very stressed and mm. uh, for many people non-existent. Mm. I mean, you know, um, I mean, I've even wondered if part, you know, you see, I mean, what I interpret is really massive deception taking place. And I wonder to what extent the prevalence of fatherlessness in homes mm. makes people more susceptible to deception. Mm. I mean, this is sort of an implication of some of the teaching in the New Testament about kind of how we got into this mess in the fall to begin with, right? And so I just wonder if even in this context, if this desire to sort of choose your own family uh, is in some level um, animated by people whose own experience with family has been fractured and uh, well, pathological. In well, some I mean, way. we we just talked about the story of Pinocchio in a in a previous podcast in our Real Talk series about the story of Pinocchio, mm-hmm. and I um the whole story is once the boy wanders away from the father, stops listening to his father, stops hearing the voice of his father. He is dragged away to every possible temptation and deception known to the world. And so I think there's probably something really deep there, Keith. Well, about... it's, it's, it's showing up in reality. Yeah. If, um, so I did my doctoral work on fatherhood and the mm. impact of fatherhood on the family. And there's a lot of people who opine um, about what's going on with inner city African-American boys and why so many of them are in prison. And a lot of people posit a racial di- dynamic um, as, a, as an answer to that question. Well, you know, the society just hates African-American boys. Um, and when I mean, you start digging deeper, there's really a fatherhood crisis going on. Back in the Jim Crow era, a African-American family was 
more than the average, more even than I think the white family likely to have a father in the home. Mm. Now, um, it's the opposite. As of a few years ago, I think you were 75% likely not to have dad in the home if you're an African-American boy or girl. Uh, it just, there's a culture problem. And if you hear, um, if you hear members of the community, I had a, a friend actually who started his doctoral work at DTS and he was doing work on African-American fatherhood because he called that the, the silent crisis that's killing African-American children in this, in this country. It's not race. It's culture, he was mm-hmm. saying. So to, to your point, whether or not a dad is in the home, there, you know, there used to actually be a, a website the government put together called fatherhood.gov. And I, I think I if remember you, those from the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you went to fatherhood.gov, you could look up a list of nationally known statistics about the benefits of having a dad in the home and the consequences of not having a dad in the home. A couple of years back, I went and tried to find it again. I used that website for some of my research in my doctoral program. But in a couple of years ago, I went back and looked, and they had changed the website. I had a hard time even finding the same information, and I thought, well, that seems oddly sinister. Mm. You know, there's a narrative that we would we prefer now, and it's the racial narrative that sort of won the day. And so we're not mm. we don't want to know about the fatherhood narrative mm-hmm. anymore. Um, so mm. anyway, all that to say, the family is huge. Yeah, well, and that crisis of, of fatherhood that I, I think is showing up in, in multiple demographics is indicative of this idea that I think we try to ignore, which is there is no institution that can replace the family. I think a lot of church discussions about family veer in this regard in the sense that they try to say something akin to, well, we have the church now. Right. And we, well, the family was important in the Old Testament, but now we have the church. And the church is sort of supposed to replace this family structure. And one, I don't think that's what the New Testament argues. I think there's some serious, yeah. I think there's some, some serious benefits and some serious importance to the church. Right. I work at one and I believe in the church. But I don't think the point is replace the family with the church. Well, you used the illustration yesterday in your message, Ben, about growing crops and food and the use of artificial fertilizers and Mm. how the nutrients are being robbed more and more out of our soil. And so the things that you grow aren't as good for you. While I wouldn't call the church artificial by any means, um, the starting point, the breeding ground, the good soil is the family unit. And so you can't replace a father in the home. There's, There's a powerful book. Um, called it's written by uh, Dr. Paul C. Vitz, and it's called Faith of the Fatherless. Um, one of the interesting arguments that people have made for a long time is that belief in God really is just wishing. It's sort of an infantile wish as you get older to find some big daddy in the sky who will care for you. And so you project your fatherhood affections on on the sky. Huh. And so Paul C. Vitz was a, a Catholic Christian who, who's also happened to be a, a, a world-class psychologist. And so he did mm. a study, a historical study and analysis of the faith of atheists, the faith, no, I'm sorry, the, um, the faith of the fatherless. What does not having a father produce? Mm-hmm. So if having a dad produces faith, what does not having a father produce? Turns out it produces atheism. Um, so he actually saw an interesting correlation between not 
um, having a dad necessarily means that you've got some weakness or some psychological proclivity that sort of erases the reality that we shouldn't take faith in God seriously because really it's just a manifestation of your yeah. father need. Yeah. You know, even though all the literature <clears throat> says that a father in the household leads to further psychological stability. But, right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The reverse is actually true. Mm. That, that not having a dad leads to um, atheism. The other interesting thing wow. that, that it points out in the book, um, the, the evidence suggests that there is great positive gain by having surrogate fathers, a youth mm. pastor who shows up in the nick of yeah. time, a pastor, a priest who shows up like the priest who showed up in Tolkien's life when his mm. dad was out of the picture and died and his mom died. A priest comes in and, and takes him under yeah. his wing and forms a father-like connection with him and, and saves his life from the brink. Um, could have gone very differently. So yeah. having that masculine man in your life is a big yeah. deal. Um, yeah, because God, well, it's interesting too that even when God is trying to redeem individuals who have lost some of these creation order institutions like the family, like a father, he doesn't seem to use institution. He seems to, to your point, create a surrogacy kind mm-hmm. of idea where he's saying you don't need an institution now because you don't have a father you mm-hmm. need a surrogate father mm-hmm. you need someone to come in and sort of uh step into that role that you lost not create some giant institution to sort of replace all that because that doesn't seem to work there's actually some interesting research that um i believe it was lifeway did where they tried to look at whether school so not just the church but also school um shaped uh, a child's likelihood of returning to church attendance as an adult. And obviously, whether it was private, public, or um, homeschooled, there were differences, right? Mm-hmm. And we could talk about those maybe on a different podcast. But the one thing that they were surprised by is none of those were the highest uh, predictor of church attendance in adulthood. It was whether they were brought to church as a child by their parents. So if the parents brought the family to church as a child— that was the highest predictor mm-hmm. of adult mm-hmm. faith formation and adult uh, mm-hmm. church attendance. Yeah, the family in, was doing it. Get involved in your child's faith formation. I tell you, in my house, I don't know if you guys have experienced this. I've tried to do some intentional faith formation with my kids. Hmm. Um, there's this kind of there's this rule of ministry planning that that I could I can liken this experience or phenomenon to. There's a rule in ministry planning which is any ministry that you want to start, some program you want to start, if you don't give it primary billing slot. Mm. Like Sunday morning or Wednesday night, if you give it some alternative billing s- slot in this in the in the week, it will it will be a flash in the pan. It will it may start off really good, but it will die out. Right? That's what we know. If you, if you really want, if you care about the ministry, go ahead and do it on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. That's what we know. Um, in in the world of church ministry, now in in the home, I find the same phenomenon to be true. You want to start some sort of initiative in your house, you're going to have to make it part of the liturgy, the primary liturgy of mm-hmm. your home, or else it will be a flash in the pan and it will fizzle out. It, you know, so I've, for instance, I've tried to make reading time, you know, as a family, part of the liturgy of our household. And so we'd gather around the table after dinner and we would read a story. We still do that from time to time. But it, I struggle to make that just part of the thing because mm-hmm. what, we all know we really want to be doing and should be doing is sitting down to watch television. Mm, Yeah. Right. So like the reading is sort of getting in the way of the liturgy 
that we all know mm. we should be about as a family, which is after dinner, we all sort of crash on the couch and yeah. watch something on screen. So I think there's, I think screens are also corrupting. We've adopted lifestyles, in other words, and I think this is something I brought up in the message yesterday in our Proverbs series that we're in at the time of recording mm. this. Um, we've adopted lifestyles that are actually um, not conducive to the sorts of conditions that would lead to faith formation in the home. We've got defaults that we revert to that are that 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 are actually antagonistic toward faith formation in the home, and screen time is one of those. Yeah, in my house. Yeah, a lot of those default, um, those default liturgies, you know, those default rhythms of the household can be really detrimental to that moral formation. One of the ones um, that I've discovered in 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 my household is this uh, retreat to the phone. So it's like if you've got a, a smartphone in your house, you know that this thing follows you around your house in your pocket. Um, and what will happen is if there's nothing else to do at that moment, if there's nothing else pressing, if I'm not uh, eating, doing the dishes or whatever, the phone comes out. It's like a natural automatic, oh, and so I'll find myself sometimes. I'll be sitting on the couch with, with, uh, with my wife on the, on the other couch, and I'll look up, and we've been sitting there for 10, 20 minutes both on our phones. And it's like, what are we doing? And it's that default liturgy of, oh, this thing has become the moral former of us at this moment. It sort of chases us around and distracts us. I think distraction in general is just kind of a, a generally bad default uh, household rhythm. It's a mindset um, of what we're finding more and more is that the, the screens we carry around in our pockets are, are addictive. We've got, um, our minds are, are literally hooked to the hit that we get, the dopamine hit of, of exploring and scrolling and refreshing pages and doom scrolling. Yeah, doom scrolling. Doom scrolling. Um, yeah, there, there's it's an addictive search that that we all go through on our phones. You know, I'll sit down on my chair sometimes, and when I'm bored, and just open up Amazon. Talk about an expensive habit. Um, <laughs> you know, that's like watching infomercials at two a.m. You know, you never know what it's going to show up yeah, in the mail. It's a dangerous week from now and game. Go, oh, yeah, I ordered, I ordered that weird porcelain candle set. You know. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, forgot all about that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so we're, and that's what I mean. I, I, I think if we as families want to take seriously, especially Christian families, Christian homes, if we want to take seriously the, the possibilities that are available to us as families to form the moral imaginations of our children, it might mean repentance. Oof. Um, we might have to come to a point of turning away from the things that we're giving our minds and our hearts to, and, and literally to turn from, to repent toward something else, and then commit ourselves to that new lifestyle. Do you guys think, I mean, this is a genuine question. Um, sometimes I suspect that, um, I, I like the idea of what you're saying, Ben, but I think, you know, instead of just, creating a vacuum into which we might be driven to do something more constructive. I think part of the problem is driven by the fact, and even our attachment to screens at some level is driven by the fact that we don't have enough to do. We have, <laughs> by, and by yeah. which I mean, we have made our lives so convenient that there, mm. we have relieved ourselves of things that are productive that would otherwise and normally throughout history occupy us. I think, I mm. think probably yes. 
I think also no, um, because I tend to be watching screens when I have plenty else to do, <laughs> and and I'm just I'm just sitting there watching screens rather than well, fixing I'm not the saying... thing in my house that I should or okay. or, or whatever you know. Yeah, I, um, I just think particularly for children, I think hmm. it's good for them to have something to do that that contributes meaningfully to the well-being of the family and not just ceremonially or symbolically. And, and right? w- actually, so I, I didn't <clears throat> mention this, but <clears throat> it's actually good for kids to be bored. Mm-hmm. It's sure. not just good sure. for kids to be plugged into something you know, productive, which is also extremely good and we should be doing with our children, to your point. But it's also just good for kids not to be entertained at all. Right. Um, take it all away. In fact, when what what we found is screen dependence in children uh, kills creativity in children. Boredom breeds creativity. And you can think back to times in your childhood. Like imagine if you'd had a cell phone, the kinds of trouble you wouldn't have gotten into, um, the forms of creative yeah. endeavor that you wouldn't have. Like, you wouldn't have built that fort outside, right, or in the woods. You wouldn't have. You wouldn't have got. You know, I wouldn't have sliced my foot open in the creek walking barefoot through the water if I'd had a. Nintendo in my house, you know, I wouldn't have written those songs or made those movies, you know, being bored led to creative enterprise. Um, and so, and so I think, I think it's a both and Yeah. yeah, yes, we are convenient and we've got so much technology. We don't have much else we could be doing or have to be doing. And, and I think to your point, I think there's probably that both and that you were mentioning, Ben, because I think Keith, you're right in the sense that we get home and we don't expect things to be happening there. And I think it's, partially because of this very segmented view we have of life we do work at work like we don't even call it a job as much we just call it work that's the place where i produce things right then you come home and that's i mean leisure maybe entertainment more more than likely you sleep you eat and you get entertained and i think there's probably a there's probably room for the christian family to recover a more holistic view of what happens at home, not even necessarily just stuffing it with productivity. Like you're saying, Ben, there's room for children to be bored and to have maybe true leisure in the sense that they're just allowed to just be right. And maybe they discover doing something, but also um, the expectation that the household has a mission, right? Mm -hmm. So I know families who spend their weekends um, instead of just, you know, being entertained, they go out and they have, you know, they have service projects that they do as a family, right? Or they're, they're doing uh, projects around the house, like you were saying, Ben, fixing those things that need to be fixed. And I think whether it's service, whether it's leisure, true leisure, or whether it's productivity, there's a belief that the household has a mission of its own, independent of maybe what your job demands or what your school demands of you. Yeah. So what are examples that you were thinking of, Keith, when you said that? About things to do? Yeah, like like that we well, used to do that maybe we're not now. I'm um, just curious. You know, I think um, we don't we don't produce our own food. We don't uh, typically beyond pets have animals that we are dependent on us to care for. Yeah, a lot of times we don't cook our own food. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say we because um, we we cook meals and eat around the table at our house, but. Uh, but I think a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. And, and we meaning the collective, <clears throat> yeah, the collective, the collective we, we sure, um, yeah. uh, doesn't the royal we. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think that. But I mean, I just look at my eight year old, and and one of the things I see with him is he just loves it when there's 
when he's got a task mm-hmm. to work on that is useful, helpful, and uh, known to be such by all the adults in his life. Hmm. So one of his favorite things is to come here to church these days and help the greeters hold the doors for people coming mm-hmm. in. And he will just, I mean, he can hardly wait to help with that because he feels like he's a part, he's doing something useful. Mm-hmm. And even around the house, you know, just little things he wants, you, you would, it's surpri- he surprises me how much he, I mean, just, hey, buddy, could you help me and run out and get the mail at the mailbox? I mean, little things like that just light his bulb. Um, because he's doing something that he knows is is really useful to someone else and not mm-hmm. just hanging around watching TV with nothing to contribute. Mm-hmm. So he, there he has an instinctive sense that I want to be useful. Mm-hmm. So 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 all I think those things are hugely important. My comments originally were more or less about story formed. Right. Um and I about, mean given that that is our yeah, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um kind of trying to lean into what 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 are the stories that we're out that that, that we're imbibing as a family with our children? Are yeah. we sitting down to watch Garfield, um, mm. or are we reading Pinocchio? You know, for lack yeah, because we keep talking about it. Um, like, are we? You know what I'm saying? Like, are we watching mm-hmm. Paw Patrol? Is that what we're doing as a family, or <laughs> or are we going to read um, Dickens' A Christmas Carol together this year? So, like, you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So, so let's so, pick of quality. Yeah. So let me maybe ask this. So growing up in your house, what was a story that was part of the fabric of the way your family communicated? Like part of just part of the life of your house included the flavor of this story. So like I'll start with mine. So at least among the the guys in my family, um, my mom didn't like, you know, the the action adventure stuff as much because she's just too kind hearted. She wants everybody to get along. But all the boys in my family, Lord of the Rings was a a story we all lived by. Right. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just it wasn't just a story that we knew and we liked. We would compare people we ran into at the store to characters in Lord it, of the Rings. It was a lens. Yeah. It, not just a. Not just a thing over here on the side, but yes. it's something you look through. Yes, and right? you would compare where you were in your growing up story to characters in Lord of the Rings. Like, oh man, like that friend of mine, he's a Samwise Gamgee. Or mm-hmm. man, that mm-hmm. dude, he turned out to be quite the Boromir you yeah, know, kind of character. A, well, he's um, an orc. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so what were those kind of stories in y'all's families? Well, um, I took Lord of the Rings, so I took the easy one. Y'all get the hard one. No, I mean, I mean... <laughs> Lord of the Rings came later in my life. Um, I, in fact, I saw the movies before I read the books. I'm one of those losers um, <laughs> in the Lord of the Rings nerd club. If you if you saw the movies before you read the books, you're a loser. Uh, but but I, I I watched the movies and was struck by the just the richness of those things. And that's that has since since my college years, late high school and college years, become very sort of formative in my own moral imagination. Um, I, and, and, and I see a lot of sort of, you know, back in, what was it, 2020, 2021, we saw all these riots around the country of people looting and doing all this stuff. I saw orcs on TV. Mm. Um, and I know, uh, you know, maybe people think, well, that's kind of harsh, you know, they were really upset. Well, they should behave themselves better, you know, um, I, I saw orcs. And in fact, mm-hmm. uh, Tolkien sat down at one point to write a sequel to the Lord of the Rings 
stories. And uh, he never could finish it. He never could make headway on it. But he had a first chapter. And in the first chapter, they stumble, across, they stumble upon these orcs who are doing nothing other than destroying an orchard that they've come across. Mm. Nothing other than just destroying property that isn't theirs. Um, pitching a fit. And so I, I, uh, that's still, you know, the Lord of the Rings is, is certainly one of the stories that does that. Um, as a kid, I would say, <laughs> this is going to sound like hyper spiritual, but <laughs> Bible stories were sort of a part of yeah. the moral landscape of my household. You know, sometimes we would sit down together and do, talk about Bible stories or open up a passage of the Bible or talk about the creation event and the narratives that followed. And, um, and so Bible stories were a big part of my household's. Yeah, I'd say that was part of mine as well. I had faithful grandparents that mm. um, were very actively involved in our lives just because we, my parents were intentional about spending time with them. So that was a huge part, but I think for me, it wasn't so much movies as a kid. I mean, I, I enjoyed movies going to the theater. I mean, the stuff we have now wasn't, I mean, nobody would have thought that this was coming our way as far as— You could as, just go to the theater uh, and assume well, everything would be fine? <laughs> well, no, no, theater. I'm just saying accessing your own home to just a myriad of things. I mean, that oh, just didn't yeah. even exist for us. Um, so my lens was more in the competition field. I mean, I was just always active in sports, and mm. uh, so I viewed a lot of stuff, not uh, people. C- comic books, though. I mean, you, I mean, co- yeah, okay, so, comic so like books. The, the, the superhero narrative. Sure, was... yeah. So I did a lot of that. I mean, pro- uh, okay. <laughs> so that just reminded me of a story. So yeah, I was really big into the superhero type stuff in comic books, and so I yeah. spent the night at one of my best friends when I was growing up his house, and so his mom took us to Burger King for lunch, and Burger King had this promo: if you got the kids' meal, you got a kite, and it was made out of butcher paper, and you just put these cheap wooden strings to right. fill in the kite, right? <laughs> So we go out after we eat at his house. I spent the night that weekend, and that was a big deal, too, as a kid. You get to spend the night at somebody's house. And um, anyway, he's Captain America, which is one of my favorite heroes now. And I was the villain. And so I picked up a rock, and he held up his shield, which was the kite we just got from Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> and I threw a rock, and it went right through that butcher paper. And he cried, and I laughed so hard that it got it got me sent home. <laughs> so and you've I been go, I had to go home, yeah. So. And you've been a supervillain ever since. I have. It's just I'm out against everybody now. Yeah. What What yeah. I love about that story is. Um, I mean, superhero stories really are some of the stories that our culture soaks up, uh, is saturated in, that form the moral imagination of children. And we play act mm-hmm. in, our, yeah. in the stories that have formed our moral imagination. In my life, war movies as a kid were another one of those sort of things. We watched movies like, you know, Sands of Iwo Jima, um, Longest Day. Um, you know, we watched a lot of those classic war movies. And we would go outside, and what would we do? We'd play, you know, the war games um yeah so talking about a show where i mean that probably as a kid impacted me the most and i would try i would go to my room and try to emulate this was the six million dollar man it's just that i mean everything was in slow motion but he could jump high run fast i'd get in my room and just as slow as i could just feel like i'm doing all of these things <laughs> and not jumping over anything you know <laughs> man you and i play basketball together and you still run in slow motion <laughs> yeah. oh man so so the moral imagination and the the opportunities the family has to 
to build intentionally that moral landscape, that mm. story landscape for kids, I think that maybe we just, we're not taking advantage of the opportunities we have. I think our homes aren't really built to thrive in that way anymore because they're more like hubs than they are like homes. They're more mm. like Grand Central Station. You know, yeah. it's like everyone sort of zooms in because we've all got our own vehicles. We, we sort of collide maybe at dinner. Um, yeah. And then we just sort of disperse again and the trains go out and everyone does their own thing. Mm. And, and so it, it isn't like the households of old where our our entire economy was based on a collective effort um, and a shared responsibility and interest in the farm, the food we were making pops mm. to your, to your point, the, the food we were going to cook together that mm. night, the, yeah. you know, our livelihood isn't dependent upon one another. It's dependent upon each of us as an automaton doing what we should do away from the home. Mm. Yeah. And, and this is where I think this idea of is, Defining a mission for your household might be a cool way to reca- to recapture this idea that we can form the moral imagination of the household. I-, I say this because I think sometimes we use this conversation to talk about, well, we're trying to form the formation. We're trying to form our children. But I think there's a lot of parents, myself included, there's a lot of adults who need to have their spiritual and moral imagination reshaped. Um, because we've just let a lot of junk stories fill that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think to your point, uh, one of the things that's been helpful for that for me is just telling the stories of uh, the previous generations or sometimes even the, the current generation of, of wisdoms of uh, Malone's is my, my mother's side um, and what they were about and what they did. You know, one of the things that's interesting in my family is um, Saturday breakfasts are kind of mythological in the wisdom house and it came from both sides of the family so whenever we would go to my grandparents house uh for the holidays especially my dad's parents the big thing was you got up and you would go into the kitchen and it was like a made to order kitchen in there my grandmother would stand there and say what would you like for breakfast yeah and and in a house with three boys you got what you got but when we went to grandma and grandpa's house, it was, you could have literally whatever you wanted. There's Waffles, a, pancakes, what do you There's want? a famous story, apparently. I was thing. too young to remember, but I'm accused of this every single time I go anywhere with my family. And I apparently stumbled out of bed with my hair all a, a fly above me. And I sat down at the table and grandma asked, what you want for breakfast? And I said, I'd like some steak and eggs, please. <laughs> I apparently asked for steak and eggs and on a random Saturday morning, and apparently she made it for me. I, I, I was too young to remember this, but my parents were aghast at me. But she was like, yep, sounds good. <laughs> she apparently had the supplies on the hand. But even on my, uh, my mom's side, it was on Saturday afternoon breakfast – or Saturday morning breakfasts. Everybody stumbled out of bed, and uh, m- the uh, grandmother would – make pancakes by the truckload. I mean, this is a family of when we got together, 30, 40, 50, 60 people and the best pancakes and homemade maple syrup you can imagine just coming in batches out of this kitchen. And so that was one of the stories that sort of shapes who we are. You know, Mm -hmm. Saturday is a day when we get together and we sit down and we enjoy each other by being hospitable. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, is it as eloquent of a story maybe as Lord of the Rings? Maybe not. But it's a story that shaped what Saturday mornings are for, yeah. if that makes sense. It does. It does make sense. Um, I, I think encounters with each other as a family like that 
help to shape the moral landscape and um, help us to be that story formed individual. Yeah. Um, so, so in closing, guys, I guess I would I would just ask each of you to maybe offer up a word of um, wisdom on the family and how it can help shape each each of its members, not just its children, but even moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas uh, for mm. Christ, right? For mm. for good. I'll start. I have found that as the as the soon to be dad, I call myself a dad in waiting. Um, <laughs> I've I I have a son, but I haven't met him yet. And um, one of the things I've learned is I am sort of the hunter gatherer of stories for my family. I as I go out into the world, I'm I'm finding stories, and what I put into my head, what I put into my heart becomes the stories I bring home to my home. And so I have a responsibility to go out and find and collect and internalize stories I then want to share at the home. And whether that's uh, spending my own personal time and reading my scriptures so that when I get to the table after, you know, after dinner, I actually know, hey, we're going to go here in the scriptures today. Hey, we're going to read this. Um, or whether it's, hey, we're going we're gonna to watch this movie instead of that movie. I've done that research. I've done that hunter-gathering. I've found that to be a strange and unexpected role I'm, I'm starting to have to play. I'm, I'm the one who brings the stories home, and am I bringing the right kind home, or am I bringing junk? Yeah, so that's good. That's mine. Well, I'll tell you as a dad that's kind of been through that already, that the benefit of those kinds of stories, I, my— <laughs> When my girls were younger and didn't drive, uh, but were, you know, coming to student ministry here at the church, on our way home, they would, if there was any silence in the room or in the car on the way home, they would say, Dad, is there another story you, you came across this week that you could tell us? Mm. And because my habit was sharing things that I'd read, whether good or bad, and tying it to Scripture, and I found that to be something that really piqued their interest and curiosity. You're talking like news stories. News stories. It could be something I, even I that happened without, apart from reading a story to me that day, I'd say, mm-hmm. hey, let me tell you about what happened. Mm-hmm. So being intentional, this whole as you go about with your mm-hmm. children, Deuteronomy 6 type stuff, um, I found to be very helpful in the formation of my daughter's mm-hmm. um, values and convictions. And so I, I was always looking for touch points to tie scripture into what was happening in the world around us. And so I, I found it, and they still ask me to this day, I mean, now that they're all out of the house, the, they enjoy that kind of conversation around the table. And so um, anyway, keep pursuing what you just said about mm-hmm. being a hunter-gatherer. I think uh, your boy will really enjoy those conversations with dad, and um, it'll go beyond their their time under your roof. So, you know, I think for me, um, maybe take a little different tack on this. Um, I, I have been pretty intentional, I think throughout my kids' lives and trying to cultivate an interest in good stories. Hmm. Um, but I, I think the older I get, the more I think it's important to, um, 
this is not going to, I mean, Ben, you made this comment. This is going to sound super spiritual. This is not going to sound super spiritual, but <laughs> I, I kind of counterintuitively, I think it, it is kind of spiritual and that is, um, cultivate, um, humor, um, and, and, and the enjoyment of humor and learning what to laugh at and that it's okay to laugh at some things. I remember, I mean, when Josh and Ben were young, I would, I would periodically, I would trot out some of the, I have a complete collection of the humorous essays of, uh, Mark Twain. And I would periodically trot out some of those and read them at the table and we would all laugh. But with my eight year old now, um, we we have made a habit for years now of reading a bunch in the evening every night at bedtime i read to him for anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour depending on the night and there's a handful of books that we've read over and over i mean we and part of that is to cultivate in him a knowledge of and a love for some of these stories <clears throat> but there's some that he is just all about and uh, and they tend to be the funny ones. Hmm. Um, and um, some of my best, most precious nights with him are when we sit in there at bedtime and just the two of us, and I read these stories that he so loves, and we laugh out loud together <laughs> at the antics of some of the characters in these stories. And I think there's something um there's there's formation going on it's mm -hmm. not sort of explicitly moral but it's 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 creating connective tissue that i think builds influence mm -hmm. and concern for one another that so i think it's easy to think about all of these questions i think in terms of well there's this explicitly spiritual content but I think the relational effect of stories um, creates um, roots on which, um, which can withstand storms mm -hmm. that may come later. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think, so I think humor and shared uh, love for some of these stories is a big deal. I love that. I think that's, uh, we talk about this. That's woven into even our teaching and preaching here because mm -hmm. it, it, it has a connection point mm -hmm. that allows truth to stick in a way that sometimes yeah. if it's mechanistic, you know, it's like, just seems like cold. It's just abstract. Yeah. Right. So. Uh, Prof. Hendricks used to say, get them laughing and then shove one down their throat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, so I would just piggyback on the things you guys have said. Um, I want to aim my comments particularly at the dads, and just say, uh, be present in your kids' lives. There's this lie that was born out of the Industrial Revolution, uh, uh, believe it or not, that a dad's primary role was to be a breadwinner. And a, certainly a dad ought to be a provider for his home. But a dad also needs to be present in the home. And... Um, I think dads fail at three levels in our society today. They abdicate their role, so they give their role to the mom, right? Um, they're uh, abusive in their role, right? And so they're present, but their presence is painful on everybody, or they're absent in their home. 
or away from their home. And there's two kinds of absence. Either you leave and you're never there because you're working or whatever, or you abandon the family. Um, but you can also be absent and be there if you're plugged into, you know, your phone all the time, or you're plugged into sports all the time or whatever, you know, video gaming, whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, fathers need to practice the power of presence in their kids' lives, whether that's reading for an hour the, the books you love or talking to your kids on the way home from school about the news stories you heard or what happened to you in the day or 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 even even sitting down with your kids in your lap to watch Garfield, <laughs> you know, but taking advantage of the, even the convenient, cheap forms of entertainment to be present in your kids' lives has more, more impact than you'd think as a dad in their lives, I think. So, um, yeah. Anything else before we? Well, to your point, we were sitting around lunch table yesterday after church and, um, one of my daughters was sharing about a family she's connected to and, um, she was just commenting on the, on the lack of engagement she's observed of the father. And, um, anyway, she was just sharing some thoughts on that. And she said, I can't remember a time in my life when my dad and mom weren't present in everything that we were doing. And that just made me feel, feel good that, you know, that's, that's her memory, you know, yeah, whether they awesome. wanted me did, there or not. Did she say that gratefully? Or? No, she did. And okay. in fact, in fact, <laughs> yeah, in we fact, were always around. Boy, I tell you. she said, she said the years that we were too young to even be in the youth group when dad was the student pastor here, you know, she said mm-hmm. it was the best because we got to be at everything that the big kids did. And then mm-hmm. they took us under their wings as, you know, yeah. Youth you pastor's kids are always adopted. Oh man, it's uh, yeah. It, it, <laughs> Mine actually happened to be, but um, yeah. but they 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 were going to be one way or the other anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so all that's, I mean, it just, I'm I'm glad that's a memory that she has, yeah. you know, and mm-hmm. just reinforces, uh, like you said, the importance of presence. And I want to do that all over again with grandchildren and mm-hmm. our, our people at our church. You know, be be there. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Well, uh, God bless all you listeners and your, and your families, and we just pray the Lord's richest blessings on each of you, seriously, that, that your homes would be full of life-giving uh, stories and time together, and um, we'll see you in the next one. This has been a Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.